Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Sarah. Hey, Peggy. <laughs> and we have with us today, since this is the season of fabulous, exciting guests, we have two guests with us today for this episode of Hope and Heresy. I'm going to ask the two of you to introduce yourself so that our audience knows who's here. I'm the Reverend Rosemary Bray McNatt. I am president of Star King School for the Ministry, which is a Unitarian Universalist seminary. Well, let me take that back. We're a Unitarian Universalist and multi-religious seminary um, in Oakland, California, and I'm a proud member of Community Church of New York since 1985. <laughs> okay, and I'm Dr. Elias Ortega, um, and I serve as president of Midwell Lombard Theological School, also a Star King. We are both Unitarian Universalists and increasingly multi-religious. Uh, my home congregation is uh, Morristown EU in New Jersey. It is super great to have you both with us. Um, and we're going to pose to you the same question we've been posing to our guests all season. Um, and then we're we're going to ask each of you to answer. And then we're all just going to talk about it. Um, so pretty casual, you know, we're just going to we're going to chat. So the question is, what is the central task facing humanity in this historical moment? And either one of you can go first. You can decide amongst yourselves. You go, Elias. Why <laughs> <laughs> you go? You know, for, for me, I'm, I want to connect that, my answer to that question to what I think is also the central task or central question for me, right? That animates my own thinking on Unitarian Universalist theology. And my from a particular perspective, particularly the university side. Right, of, of the tradition. And I would say that the central task will be for me, um, the way that I can articulate it is to really learn to become an anti-violent faith, right? Um, how do we embrace um, uh, a posture of being in the world that is deeply committed to be anti-violent in all the forms that, that it takes? And for me, um, you know, I'm thinking recently uh, two areas of concern that come to, to mind are both uh, violence against women, particularly in femicide, and violence against children, right? For me, those things are connected. And when we think intersectionally, right, around other issues that Unitarian Universalists as a community care about, right? Um, the environment, human rights, economics, uh, poverty, incarceration, right? We can frame all these questions in connection of how to learn to be anti-violence and still connected to those issues. But, uh, I'm thinking uh, within my own context, right? I'm from the Caribbean, from Puerto Rico, right? And uh, spent some of my time in, in, in New Jersey, in Newark, where I was born. And the question of, of femicide take a particular kind of complexity when we think through it in terms of uh, immigration status, class, and race. And, and I would say the same applies to, to children. Right. 
um, how do we think about the ways in which children of color, right, are particularly put in situations of are in context of increased poverty, right, thinking about environmental issues that impact right their, their lives in terms of contamination, right? They're um, thinking about the ways in which they are police, right, is connected. So for me, that that is part of the central task, right? How to learn to be an anti-violence faith that is connected to our commitment of, of universal salvation and inclusive welcome, right? It has to be centered, right, around how do we address, you know, our violent tendency towards each other? That will be the central task. You brought up so many really great points, Elias. Um, when I started thinking about this, um, it occurred to me that what's, what I think is lacking right now is a commitment to evolution, not in the scientific way, but the capacity for change. I think humanity is in trouble if we can't figure out how to make the massive changes that are necessary and that include the points that you're talking about. Um, I think that because there is so much happening and there are so many things going on in the world and so many pressures on so many groups of people that what people default to is this desire for things to go back to the way they were, whatever that way was. And it's exactly the opposite of what we need right now. We, we need to figure out how we're gonna make the change and the transition to a humanity that's gonna survive. Because right now, if we aren't committed to making those changes, I'm not sure we are going to survive as a species. And that goes for our, everything from how we live on the planet to how we treat one another, how we maintain institutions that are supposed to contribute to our well-being, um, and understanding what a heavy lift it is that we're talking about right now. Um, and that heavy lift is gonna look different for different cultures, societies, people. But I think what we all are going through right now is this, I don't want anything to, I don't wanna do anything new. I don't wanna try anything new. I can't, I can't do it anymore. And I don't think anybody's really immune from that, but I think, our lives as a species depend on our getting past it. I feel like there's so much there. <laughs> Both of you said. Um, and I'm really struck by this idea that um, really what both of you are lifting up is fundamental cultural change, right? Like we have got to get to ourselves. I'm hearing you say, Rosemary, we've got to get ourselves to a place where we can actually not just accept change, but like proactively seek change and that one of those changes Elias has to be that we find a way to be a more nonviolent species right it, I was thinking about the the ways that we accept violence even if we're not enacting violence right and the idea that part of the job is to no longer accept it whether it's 
playing out in the real world or on maybe even on our TVs and maybe even in the way that we interact with one another, even if it isn't physical violence, but the sort of emotional violence of ignoring each other or not loving each other or, or making sort of oppressive demands of each other. And that there's a lot of layers to that question of anti anti-violence and how to actually embrace that in full. Yeah, you know, I, I can give you two, two quick examples for me that are very, in some ways, very minute things, but uh, no, they're not minute. I think they are significant in, in my life. Um, you know, given the context in which I grew up, right, in which violence was prevalent, uh, I have a hard time when folks are always very close and in front of my face, right? It, it feels kind of aggressive. So uh, folks who interact with me are kind of used to like, you know, I greet you, I talk to you, and then I turn a little bit sideways, right? Uh, and and we we talk a little bit sideways, right? And it's, it's kind of for me, it's a really a peace sign, right? My intentions, and and I find folks then just kind of go and keep doing this dance as folks are coming closer, right? And and it, it could be it is cultural, right? In in some ways, right? And contextual, but for me, I I, I feel that in my body, right? That it's like this this is not particularly comfortable for me, so I, I need to shift. And and I think that that's more kind of interpersonal communication, communication style. But I wonder in what ways we do not always aware in the ways in which our even presence and body can communicate in some of the folks' particular feelings, right? And how do we, maybe I'm hyper aware as a man of color, right? And, and what my presence could signify in some places. But another example for me is coming within kind of UU context and conversation of, uh, of really kind of uh, policing, right? And I remember clearly a conversation around uh, folks having these feelings around children, right? Being police and resource officers in the school, right? But at the same time, asking for increased policing in the neighborhood because crimes are, are coming up, right? And one of the things in this particular conversation, interaction, I was talking to this, you know, well-meaning, uh, right? Congregational member. Uh, and it's like, you know, we love the children. We will not do anything to, to harm your children, right? So I kind of push the conversation. It's like, okay, my children are worthy of love for you. But kind of how far would you, would you go to protect the well-being, right, of my children, right? And, and of course, folks start numbering things that they can do. And then I push the question further. And it's like, well, uh, do you think that I'm integral to the well-being of my children, right, as the parent of the children? Folks, it's like, yeah, of course, you know. And it's like, well, then how far would you go to ensure that I am safe? right, for the protection of my children, right, because what you are calling for in increased community policing then puts me, right, in direct line of fire, right, and then that that was the shutdown to the conversation, right, folks kind of could not go there to say in what ways they will protect, ensure that folks like me are safe for the well-being of my children, right, so I think that's, at times, that, that is the tension, right, that, that when I think about becoming anti-violent, it's like, this is part of the problem, right, that we, there's a moment, and we know this for statistics, right, studies, that children of color are seen as adults a lot sooner than other children, right, and they're interacted as such, right, so I was trying to bring that awareness, right, to to the folks, um, and, and I think, Rosemary, as you said, right, we are not willing to evolve, right, and do those changes that, that we need to, right, in the larger context of how do we as a species, right, can make those transitions to ensure our mutual survival, not just, you know, personal. And I just want to lift up the fact that, so Elias teaches and, and works in Chicago, and I was born and raised in Chicago and still have family there. And just a couple of days ago, um, Chicago elected a mayor that 
frankly, I didn't think was going to win because there is this massive um, energy in Chicago around it being this nightmare place to be and that their that blood's running in the streets and that it's completely out of control. Even though the reality is that um, of the top 10 cities in the United States that are dangerous, Chicago doesn't make that list. Chicago doesn't make the top 15, right? That doesn't mean that there is no crime in Chicago. It just means that, as I heard somebody say when I was looking at YouTube, uh, the WGN report about it, the sister said that we lead in the narrative about violence, not the actuality of violence. And Chicagoans, especially people of color who in Chicago, decided that even though that crime is higher statistically in neighborhoods where people of color live, they were not seduced by this whole narrative um, that was put forth by um, the guy Dallas who was talking about law and order because people of color know what that means. It doesn't mean they're protecting people of color. It means that they are bringing more police and threatening more lives of more people of color. And I have to say how inspired I was by the fact that with all of the challenges Chicago has, they didn't buy into the nonsense. They did not buy into the nonsense. And I think in part it's because there's a bigger awareness in people of color about the complexity of living in a community where people don't have enough to eat, where people do not have anywhere to live, where people cannot get a job. And there's been, and the systematic disinvestment that's been going on in Chicago since I was a child in Chicago. And when you combine that with the Chicago Police Department, which has been corrupt since I was a child in Chicago, mm -hmm. um, there is, it, it gave me hope that there might be ways to pierce this unending narrative about who and what needs to be controlled and by whom. So. It, and actually, uh, uh, sorry, uh, one thing that I want to add about this is I think in the national divide, white folks are easy to blame Republicans or Democrats. And it is important to, to name that in Chicago has been a democratic city for a long time, right? This, long is the, time. this is the democratic machine, the democratic party who has been, you know, in charge of the police, right? In charge of, of the city and these policies, we see the effect, right? right. Uh, and the other candidate, this is two runners who are both Democrats. But those kinds of elections, there are these little pockets that make me feel like the change you're talking about, Rosemary, is that this is possible, that we, I won't go into a whole tangent, but this morning I was feeling it pretty strong, this idea of like, are we ever going to be able to push through, are any of us, can I push through and make real change? And then there are these moments where it feels like those, someone is, is speaking truth and they're speaking truth into a very loud microphone and people are hearing them and cheering them up. And really, if we look at the whole trajectory of time, we do all, you know, the arc of the universe does bend toward justice. It just, 
not only does it take a long time, we have to push so hard to make that real. And there's so many casualties in the interim. And that's the thing that I'm always conscious of. Um, when uh, I just finished writing an essay for a friend of mine who's doing a book about Black women talking about um, policing and their families and things like that. And I was talking about my younger son who lives in Columbus, Ohio, which frankly has a police force that is a, not a whole lot better than Chicago's is. But for a while, my son was door dashing and then he stopped. And I was like, you know, what's up? And he says, mom, I just get so much anxiety when I see a blue light. I just can't do it. And I was just enraged. I mean, I had to figure out how not to say any of that while I was talking to him. But I'm like, okay, so I spent my whole life protesting, marching, voting, doing all these things. And I'm having a conversation with my grown child about how he can't do basic things that every young adult is trying to do when they're trying to save money or, you know, get a little bit ahead or keep gas in the tank because he's not sure if he's going to be all right out there. And just the idea of it is enough to make him want to go back in the house. The, those are the moments, Peggy, when I'm like, why did we even bother? Because that's real. I mean, why? When, when it feels like we're standing still or moving backwards, how much energy is it possible to, you know, make my world so tiny I never have to look at any of this? The reality, though, is that when you're white, like I am, that's real. Like, I can do that. I can go, okay, well, this is a lot, and I've been working hard, and I don't really want to do it anymore. And that doesn't leave either of your children any safer, right? So we, so to push through it and say, it, it's real that we're not moving as fast as we have to move, and that doesn't mean that I can stay home and, you know, watch Top Chef. <laughs> you have to. I think this is where Rosemary's point about needing to shift something about how we approach change is so important because I, I also am a white person and my congregation is predominantly white. And I will say that like on paper, they share all these values, right? And, and most of my peers do. And when like the rubber hits the road, do they really want to have to change anything about the way they live their lives? Do they really want to have to give up privilege or safety or like adopt a sense of fear that they've never had to feel before, right? Like I think so, so Rosemary, what you said really resonates with what I see around at least parts of, of my own world and experience is that people don't like to evolve and change if it means being afraid or sacrificing in ways that they don't want to have to sacrifice, right? And so how do you shift people? And I actually, the more we talk about it, I feel like it's super connected, which is how do you shift people into understanding that the only way to actually achieve nonviolence for everyone, right? And and actual liberation and actual freedom for everyone is by actually sacrificing, right? That, that there is something that has to be given up. And whether that's the sense of everything can stay the same for me in my nice little bubble or whatever it is, but, but there's such an element of fear wrapped up in that too, right? Like wrapped up into that question of change and anti-violence and all of it is, it's not just sort of stagnancy and laziness, I don't think. I think there's active fear. 
the reality, what I say to white people a lot is you're going to have to let go of power. And that is real, right? Power, it's so easy when you're the voice in the room, everyone listens to you, or you, you're, you can walk down the street. I mean, I'm raising a white man. He's 13, but I don't have the kinds of fears, Elias, that you're talking about. It's a different, my world is a different world, even if we're on the same block. So challenging white people to say, are you willing to, to let go of power and let someone else's voice be heard, shift the way, shift the entire dynamic so that we are not, which which maybe that maybe there's a real fear, right? Well, then what happens to my child? But I do not in any way believe that if we were to dismantle the current system, that what gets rebuilt means that that like white kids aren't safe. I I believe all kids then are safe. We can build something that where everybody can really be safe. But I think Rosemary's right that to move people from the complacency of everything works for me right now to everything needs to work for everybody, that there's there is this um there's a narrative we don't have yet somehow, or not collectively. We don't have the story that inspires everyone to say, yes, I'm I'm letting go of my place and I'm expanding. I keep saying Unitarian Universalism is like how we expand wider and wider and pull more people in. But that's not about losing, that's about gaining, right? That's about more and more in the center. How do we create the narrative that inspires people to that point? I feel like part of the problem is we're up against American white culture, which positions everything as a zero sum game and positions scarcity as like the central narrative. Right. So if I give up power to someone else, I have lost and they have won. Right. Or there's only so much safety to go around. Like, I actually think that is part of what. Right. Like that that's part of the American narrative. Right. Is that there has to be someone on the bottom so someone can be on the top. And so what we're fighting against on some level is the entirety of sort of American culture as it has evolved over. Sorry, I go on a soapbox. I don't think that's a mm-hmm. I don't think that's a, a soapbox kind of rant. I think that. Um, this idea, well, just take what's happening in Unitarian Universalism right now in discussions of white supremacy culture. The discussion, not the doing, the discussions about white supremacy culture. So Starkings had a, a curriculum that has talked about disrupting white supremacy culture that we started working on in 1996. And we have caught nothing but hell about it for a good decade, maybe more. And it's only recently that there's been some purchase that we've been able to, to gain in this conversation. But that's only among people who actually have begun to listen to the conversation that people are attempting to have in the white supremacy culture arena and thinking, oh, has anybody ever talked about this in Unitarian Universalism? as opposed to the argument that says, well, I'm not a white supremacist, you know, like we think they've got a hood in the closet that they're hiding and that, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's the extreme end of what we're talking about, but getting people to focus on that feels like it's the work of a lifetime. (laughs) And when you consider the collateral damage that is going on right now in congregations, 
among the people who have said, hey, wait a minute, we need to take this seriously. If we are the people we say we are, this is our next step. Dismantling and disrupting white supremacy culture is our next step. Well, oh my God, what'd you say that for? Okay. So if, if we are at the place where we can't even talk about disrupting, I'm not saying actually doing the disruption, we can't talk about it in our congregations and in our communities, what hope do we have for this evolution? I'm thinking about this in, in, in different layers, right? I think one of the layers that I'm thinking about is, uh, you know, as an educator and some of the work that I have done, there was a lot of, I, at some point early in my career, I received, you know, I would say well-intended critiques from, from colleagues, right? That were questioning my, kind of my interest in teaching classical social theory. So the white guys, right? Uh, Max Weber, Durkheim. Uh, Simeon and others, and and it was kind of kind of interesting, right? Because they were thinking, he's like, no, but you know, we know that you know the colonialism, right? We're expecting this kind of black radicalism through it, and I'm thinking, he's like, well, that that is interesting, because what make you think that I'm not teaching that I'm teaching these folks the same way that other folks will, will teach them, right? I'm, I'm mobilizing some of the analysis that these folks bring for very different ends. So um, I'm thinking through them in the colonial lenses, anti-racist lenses, right? Uh, Anti-Patrick lenses that they can mobilize in other contexts, um, right? In a way that is effective, right? Uh, as a way to open the developmental conversation to then radicalize that kind of kind of more. And and it took a while, right, for for some of my colleagues to kind of see the impact, right, and what folks were learning and how they were using it. You know, the content to say, I'm not selling out, right, to to this thing. I'm actually radicalizing this work. And I find it, I mean, honestly, I do find it interesting, right, for, for particular issues. I want to ask you something about that, Elias. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think it's in part because I mean, the virtue signaling is very real? Um, and we, we tend to allow ourselves, or we want to push about the perfect, often at the expense of the good. Mm -hmm. it, is it because we're a religious community that we lean into that? Is it because we are always, or not all of us, but are looking for this beloved community that is idealized for us? And so all of the things that attend to that are idealized as well? You know, I think you and I have speak, I'm talking in another context about this. <laughs> so, so, so you know my position without lamentation, right? And without the rituals of, of confession, right? I'm not sure we're going to get too far. No, you're <laughs> right. And that would work because what, what it ended up being is we idealize the, the community, right? We idealize the, the, the idea of what the community will look like without, you know, the challenge of, of what the community is. Right. Um, and I was thinking, you know, Malcolm X always come to mind, right? You cannot stab me, you know, nine inches, pull it six and call it progress, right? Because you have still stabbed me anyway, right? And I think that's uh, <laughs> that, that's part of the challenge. Um, you know, how do we understand that? Uh, I will say the transgenerational work that needs to happen, right, to, to heal uh, the wounds, right, that, that we have created uh, to understanding that maybe our task is on becoming worthy ancestors is to do our work to create the conditions so that others can work in this garden and do it better, right? Uh, better equipped than we were and understand our limitations. Yeah. But I think that's happening whether we want it to or not, whether we mm -hmm. work on it or not. I mean, um, as as a mother to some millennials, um, they're not playing. Um, they really aren't interested in the excuses. They you know, if there's not every millennial and Gen Z person isn't it is in that space. 
But the ones who are, are not interested in your sad stories about what you couldn't do. When I, when I look at some of the things that, that millennials and Gen Z are doing and the ways in which they are not willing to compromise around certain things, I am filled with pride for, for seeing that. I worry because just as people my age and older um, haven't always been as open to, to change um, and haven't listened, I sometimes feel that millennials and Gen Zs don't listen about how complex things are. But the energy that they bring um, and the willingness to say, well, we have to have a conversation about white supremacy culture and what it means. Mm. They, they're all about that. <laughs> I, I'm so grateful to both of you for engaging this question so well. And I, I'm feeling like we didn't, you didn't answer the question as much as open a whole world for everybody else to to enter with you to start We're thinking educators. about that. That's what we do. That's what we do. <laughs> yes. like, do it well. <laughs> and I, I feel like I want to rest at both of your feet and just learn all there is. Your answers to this question were so um, wonderfully inspiring and eye-opening. And I want to echo Peggy's gratitude that you all have given such um, insightful answers to this, you know, not insignificant and not small question. So much gratitude to both of you for being with us. It's Thank my you. pleasure. It's been a real honor to talk to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you.